We're going to be looking at both those parts of Scripture, and I'd love you to join with me in praying that God will help me to both speak the truth and for it to be interesting, uh, because it would be a shame if it was truthful but it was boring, and it would be even worse if it was interesting but untruthful. So how about we pray that it's truthful and interesting? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you'll help me to understand this passage, to explain it clearly, uh, to speak your truth, and to help us all to understand just how significant is this day we call Good Friday. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder what are the most chilling words that you've ever heard? Maybe it was a telephone call where you heard that a mother or father or a grandparent or someone close to you has passed away. It's pretty hard, isn't it, to hear of the death of someone close to us. It's hard to think at the time of anything that could be worse. I can think of a number of chilling words that I've heard over the years. There was a time uh, over 10 years ago, we were involved in a serious car accident. We rolled over a number of times and when we came to a halt, our daughter, who was seated in the back, as was our son, called out, where's Marcus? The car had been rolling for about 100 metres and we looked around and he wasn't in the car. They were chilling words. And then to hear him crying out. He'd been worried that he'd lost us, we were worried that we'd lost him. And it was only a little bit more than a year later, lying in a hospital bed, wondering what was wrong with me, that I heard the words, you have a tumour. And the lump that welled up in my throat, I can still feel it today. And then a few days later, the oncologist coming to the bed and saying, it's incurable. There's nothing we can do. You'll probably live for 12 months. 10 to 13 months is about the average. Friends, these are chilling words. And I imagine if we were to sit and somberly have conversations with each other, we would all have things that we would say to one another. Maybe it's, you're fired. Maybe it's worse than we thought. Well, Jesus had some very chilling words to say, and we've been reading them. We hear also in this Psalm of David, Psalm 22, chilling words that get taken up on the lips of Jesus, and I will argue that they are the most chilling words in the whole of the Bible. I wonder if you've felt like David. Let's look at these first two verses in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Friends, have there been times when you've called out to God, but you've heard silence? Times when you've needed his help, his guidance, but there's been no answer. Have there been times when you've heard that God is the one you can turn to and you've cried out to him and he hasn't seemed to help? Friends, have you had this experience of calling out to God and wondering if he's even there? Well, it's pretty hard for David. David, look down in verse 11, 
says to God, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. And this is very hard for David because he's a man who trusted in God. You notice from verse 1, he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that he doesn't know God. It's not that he doesn't trust God. It's that God doesn't seem to be listening. And he knows that God is a listening God. Look at verses 3 to 5. Yet you are the one enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. See, he looks back at the past and he sees many examples of God rescuing, listening, helping, providing hope for his people. When they cry to him, they are saved, it says in verse 5. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Why is David's prayer not being answered when God had showed himself to be the one who answered prayer? Abraham calls out to God and God answers. Isaac calls out and God answers. Jacob, Joseph, they all cry out to God and God answers. Naomi and Ruth, Deborah and Hannah, they've all cried out to God and God has answered them in their prayers. Why not David? Why is God not listening? Why won't he help David in his distress? It's a fair question, isn't it? There's an agony in this cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David cries, and all the more troubling for us to understand because David is God's anointed. David is the king that God has installed. David is the one whom God had placed his spirit upon to do his work, to lead and to rule over his people. David was to be the shepherd of Israel. So why would he be crying to God, why have you forsaken me? It doesn't make sense to us, does it? How hard it is for David to understand he's God's chosen one. He's God's anointed one. He is, in fact, the Christ. He's the Messiah because that's what those words mean. God's anointed king. And yet God remains silent. Well, friends, fast forward a thousand years. And we hear these words again cried out to God, but this time on the lips of the Messiah, the King, the Son of David, the Chosen One, this time on the lips of Jesus. If you come with me to, to Mark chapter 15, at three in the afternoon, reading from verse 34, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Chilling words. Why is Jesus crying out these words? And I think on the lips of Jesus they are even more chilling than they were on the lips of David. Jesus, of course, had been born into this world. In Mary's womb he had come into this planet, this world. He'd come to be amongst us. He had trusted in God from his early days. At the temple he's in his father's house. And yet we see back in verse 10, from birth I was cast on you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. He's known God since the very beginning. Why now is God not answering? What's gone wrong? What's happened? When he was baptised, the spirit of God descended on him. 
And God said from heaven, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. He goes into the temple and he says, as the spirit of the Lord is upon me, I have come to bring good news to the poor. And Jesus goes about doing good. He says that I and the Father are one. He says, if you've seen me, then you have seen God the Father. We have seen as we look at Jesus' life, the perfect one who's lived in great fellowship with God. So what now has gone wrong? He is a tender man. He lives with kindness. He welcomes children. He is teaching people, healing people, even raising people. He's giving people new hope and a new future. He's driving out demons. He's raising the dead. So why will God not listen to him? He's now hanging on a cross, abandoned, rejected. He's denied by his own followers. Peter three times says, I never even knew this guy. Didn't know him. He spent three years with him. And now he's rejected him. They flee. They abandon Jesus. And worse still, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he do that? Why would he cry these words? I mean, th these words that were written a thousand years before him, Jesus would know the psalm. He'd know this psalm of David. And he chooses on the cross to take these words upon his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, they make more sense when Jesus cries these words at one level, but at another level, they make no sense at all. Because here is God amongst us crying out to God, his father. Jesus comes to fulfill and to give the full expression to David's words a thousand years later. Looking back at Psalm 22, but this time thinking of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. It doesn't make sense, does it? It's so wrong. It's so out of place. What have we missed? But it's not just these words. It's the whole context of this psalm. In so many ways, the whole of this psalm is to be applied to Jesus. Let me give you some examples here. We won't look at every verse, but here in verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. How was it that Jesus entered into Jerusalem a week before to the praise and adulation of all peoples? And then they shouted to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He's rejected, he's scorned, he's despised. In so many ways, Jesus is the one of this psalm. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Or down in verse 14, he's been poured out like water and all of his bones are out of joint. His heart has turned to wax. It's melted within him. Here is a picture of one who is coming to nothing. One who is having life drained from him. 
Verse 17, all my bones are on display. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garments. Friends, Psalm 22 is quoted 13 times in the New Testament and applied to these last events of Jesus. What's going on? Why is this the psalm that Jesus takes as he cries out to God on the cross? Why these words? Point after point, detail after detail. And you see what's going on in Psalm 22, it's pointing to the crucifixion. And you don't see it any more clearly than in verse 26, sorry, verse 16. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me, They pierce my hands and my feet. There is Jesus with nails through his hands and nails through his feet, hanging on a cross, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Extraordinary thing, really. Let me give you some historical perspective on this. It's a clear picture of crucifixion. And it's written by David, 1000 BC. Do you know there are no references to crucifixion in the Old Testament? Do you know in 1000 BC it hadn't even been invented as a means of killing? It was the Persians that created the notion of nailing people to a piece of wood to execute them through crucifixion. It was taken on by the Phoenicians in 400 BC and then the Romans in about 300 BC. When David speaks these words, crucifixion isn't a thing. But he's pointing forward to the time when it will be. These words apply so deeply, so precisely to Jesus. And of course, crucifixion was, it was a horrible, horrible thing. There was a a Roman historian at the time of of Jesus. They were contemporaries. His name was Seneca. And he wrote about the horror and the agony of crucifixion. Let me just read you a little bit from one of his letters. He says, Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, And drawing the breath of life amid long drawn out agony, he would have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross. In other words, it was an excruciating death. And if you knew that you could find a way to kill yourself before going to the cross, you would do so. It was drawn out, it was agonising. People would drown as the blood filled their lungs. They would be unable to pull themselves up on the pain of the nails in order to be able to take another breath. And sometimes it took days. And the Romans were brilliant at it. In fact, there are accounts in ancient history of whole pathways being lined with crosses where they executed criminals and they left them hanging there to die. Sometimes it took days. And here is Jesus. Here is the one in whom God is well pleased, nailed to a cross. Friends, what is going on here? Why is this? Why is Jesus now dejected, despised, 
Why is he tormented? Why does he have nails through his hands and his feet? Why is there a crown of thorns on his head? Why is there a sign above his head? In multiple languages, this is the king of the Jews. Why is he crying out to God? Well, here is the answer, friends. In fact, we we see a deep irony when we look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 in the psalm. We, we read this quoted effectively. It's taking place in the reality of Jesus. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You see, there's an irony here. It's a very deep irony. If you are the son of God, save yourself. If you trust in God and God loves you, surely he'll rescue you. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. They taunt Jesus. They ridicule Jesus. They despise him. And here is the irony. As they do so, he is dying for them. He is remaining on the cross to save them. The nails are through his hands and his feet, not because he has been unwittingly overpowered but because he has gone to the cross so as to bring about the salvation of the very people who are killing him. It's a bit like if if you were caught in a rip down the beach, Rainbow Beach or somewhere in town, and the lifesaver comes out to save you. And as you go down and you bob back up again and the lifesaver reaches out to you, you hit him away. And you make up some ridiculous joke at the lifesaver's expense and you spit on him and you taunt him and you say what a stupid cap you're wearing on your head and you go down and you take in more water and you come up again and he's still there to save you and you spit on him again and you call him some ridiculous name and you swear at him that's what they're doing he's dying to save them and they're mocking him they're ridiculing him they're taunting him The reason he's not coming down from the cross is for their sake. That's what's going on. Here is the perfect, innocent son of God, the Messiah, abandoned by God and crying out and no answer. The night before, Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and he knelt and he prayed and he asked his disciples to watch and pray, but they fell asleep. And as Jesus cries out to God, his father, he's in agony. And and it's like he's perspiring sweat, drops of blood are coming down from him. And he's saying to God, God, if there's any way, take this cup from me. What is this cup? Well, the Old Testament tells us it's the cup of God's anger, the cup of God's judgment. Why would Jesus be taking the cup of God's judgment? Why would God be angry against Jesus? It doesn't make sense, does it? Why do we call this day a good day? As Jesus prays to God, he's there alone. As he's crucified, he's hanging there, abandoned and nailed to a cross and calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, friends, why has God forsaken him? The psalm doesn't give us an answer, but the Bible does. 
I want to take you to another part of scripture that was written 600 years before Jesus. It's not printed on your piece of paper, so just listen as I read this. It's from the prophet Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 53. It's speaking of the one to come. And think about Jesus as you hear these words. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the selfishness, the wickedness, the evil of us all. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why has God forsaken him? Let me take you to another verse, to the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it says this of Jesus. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, what's going on on that Good Friday event? What's taking place on the cross with Jesus? The innocent one is taking upon himself the guilt of you and me. He's becoming the guilty one for us. The sinless one is taking our sin upon himself. He is wearing the cost of our rebellion against God. See, why is God not answering him? Why has God forsaken him? Here is the short answer, friends. Because of you and because of me. That's why. It's because of our sin, our greed, our envy, our selfishness, our anger, our lust, our deceit, our pride, our sexual immorality, our idolatry, our oppression, our harsh words, our selfish ambition, our inconsideration of others. And we could go on and on. That's what Jesus takes on himself. And as God looks at Jesus... The words of the song that we know, the father turned his face away, make sense. Because the holy God does not look upon evil. And Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, isn't dying for his own sin. He committed none. He's not dying for things that he did wrong. There were no things. He is the one who's come to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the one who's chosen to take our sin upon himself and bear the wrath of God for our sake. Friends, he takes our place. That's why Christians describe this day as Good Friday. It's the reason that God has forsaken his son. It's for you and for me. It's why Jesus is on the cross for you and for me. That's why God does not answer him. Friends, this is the most chilling cry 
in all the history of the universe. And it's because of me and because of you. Well, Jesus no doubt has Psalm 22 in his mind. Perhaps he'd been meditating on this psalm for days, weeks or years as he contemplated what he had come to do. And as he hangs on the cross and cries to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus would know that this psalm takes a turn and it's a turn for the better. And it takes place in verse 22. When he hear these words, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And all you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. Do you hear that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, he is nothing. But he can go on to say that God has not despised or scorned his suffering. He has not hidden his face. He has listened to the cry for help. Jesus isn't saved from dying. No, because that's what he came to do. But he will be saved from death. And of course, we need to wait till Sunday morning. He will be saved from death because God is vindicating that he, the innocent one, was dying for the sake of the guilty. And Jesus has in mind that this is going to bring about incredible good. As he breathes his last, as he turns to God, he does so trusting in his Father. And he knows that his Father, who has proven trustworthy, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph and, and to all of the people, Naomi and Ruth and Rebecca and Hannah and Deborah and all of the people that have trusted in God in the past, so he will be trustworthy once again. Friends, Jesus, I take it, is dying according to plan. But God will raise him from the dead according to plan. Last year we spent the year working through the Gospel of Mark and Jesus on three occasions very explicitly said, I must go to Jerusalem where I will be rejected, I will be killed and on the third day I will be raised. That's what he must do. That was the divine plan. That was his mission. And Jesus bears the wrath of God for you and for me. And if you look down at the last verse of this psalm, you can see the extent of God's plan. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Isn't that incredible? These words written 3,000 years ago, Jesus picking them up 2,000 years ago, a plan for all people, all nations, the rich, the poor, feasting and enjoying God together for all time. That is his plan and it's being unfurled now. Here it is. Here am I. 
proclaiming his righteousness, declaring it to a people who were then not born, he has done it. As Jesus hung on the cross, he had in mind 2021. He had in mind Bonnie Hills. He had in mind you and me. And the reason he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is because he would rather be forsaken by God than have you or I forsaken for all eternity. Wow. Friends, if you've never come to the point of appreciating why this Friday is Good Friday, if you've not come to the point of putting your trust in Jesus and thanking God for his gift to you, today would be a great day to do that. I was challenged on this day a number of years back when a very good friend of mine died at the age of 29. And people would ask the question, will we ever be able to think of this day as a Good Friday again? To which the answer is, only if you put your trust in Jesus. He did. Will you? And if you know this to be true, if you know this good news, will you be reminded of what God has gone to for you? Being Christian, it's not accepting a, a set of rules and regulations. It's not following a particular philosophy. It's having your life rescued by God who came to die for you. I think we ought to thank him for that, don't you? And today would be a good day to do that.